Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our day of learning. Thank this Thanksgiving day. Good morning. Uh, today's uh, learning is dedicated to Freda Vasirachmiel, my uh, father-in-law's mother. May the Shama have an Aliyah. Amen. Amen. So today we're going to discuss the idea of tshuva, which is almost magical. Talmud says tshuva precedes the world. Because when you do tshuva, tshuva has the ability to reach into your past and to change your past. How can you change your past? You know, there's past, present, and future. How can you change something that happened in the past? This is, this is the, the miraculous power of Teshuvah. It's almost as if you go back and like you reach like a parallel universe. Like you could have, you lived your life one way and now you're going back in time and imagine I made a different choice in my life. I would make a different choice in my life. How would I have lived if I made a different choice? And that's, that's the power of Teshuvah. Like the, it's almost like a, an alternative universe. You're going back and like you're living your life now on a whole different level as if you made a different choice in your life, as if you made the, lived a different type of life than you actually lived. And that's an option. It's, it's mind-boggling. That's why it's one of the things that precedes the world. The whole frame of world, this world is past, present, and future. You're stuck in that, in that frame of reference. How do you have the ability to go into your past and live and like reaching a, a whole new level? But everything is reflected in Allah. Where do you find such a concept that you can reach into your past and change your past? So we do find in Allah such a concept. And that's the idea of Hataras Nadar. Mitzvah 406, and that's in Parshas Matis. But as the but it says in in um, it says in in the in the last mission in the first chapter of Chagiga. The idea to be able to nullify an oath, it's, it's like, it's in the ear, it's floating in the ear. Because it doesn't say anywhere in the Torah. It says, clearly, it says, you shouldn't desecrate your word. If he gave you a word, you made an oath, you have to stick to your oath. From this we learn, but if you come to a wise, a wise one, and the wise one... Um, nullify, not nullifies, he permits your vow, then it's okay. But it's like floating in the ear. It's not even like, almost, almost not even hinted at in the Torah. It's just like very vague. And therefore someone to learn, the Bartanur and others learn, that what the mission is telling us is that really you're not allowed to. Really you have to keep your word. Even when the wise man cancels and, and nullifies your vow, you nullify the vow, you still have to, you still have to, even if he permits the vow, really, it's not good. You should really listen to your vow. But if you don't, there's no prohibition. There's no lashes, there's no prohibition. But that's not how most people learn. Most people learn that once the wise man, the wise one, 
undoes your vow, then it's as if there was no vow. And it's so, it's so miraculous, that's what it says, it's like floating in the air, it's like not part of this world, our world, we live in a world where there's a past, present, and future. How could you stand in the fu- now and change your past? Because het in the dot means it's as if there was never a vow. And the, the halachic implication is a difference between Hatoras nedarim and afaras nedarim, nullifying your vow. Nullifying your vow, a father could nullify his young daughter's vow. A husband could nullify his wife's vow if it affects the marriage. If it's a vow that affects the marriage, he can nullify. But there's a difference between nullifying a vow and when you go to the wise one, you go to the rabbi and he undoes your vow. For example, if someone betrothes a woman and says, I'm marrying you on the condition that you have no vows. So if she had a vow, and then her father and her husband canceled, uh, nullified the vow, it's not a good marriage. Because she had a vow, but it was nullified, it was smashed, it was destroyed, demolished. Demolished means there's something there, but it was demolished. Versus, when the wise one, if she went to the wise one, and the wise one undoes the vow, then it's as if she never had a vow. It's like if a, if a husband says, I'm going to marry you on the condition that you have no defect, no physical defect. And she had a physical defect. She went to the doctor and she was cured from the physical defect. Is it a valid marriage? No. Yes. Now you're cured from the, de- from the defect. But you had a defect. The doctor cannot reach into the past as if you never had a defect in the first place. You had a defect. But he was able to cure it, to heal it. But the cure is only from now on, going forward, not in the, in the past. So when he betrothed her, at that time she had a defect, a physical defect, and then it was cured. So it's not a valid marriage. But if she had an oath, and then she goes to the rabbi, and the rabbi is matineder, then it's as if it never happened. And this is how the Kesev Mishnah explains, the Rambam writes, and that also explains many halachas, the difference between atoros and the dorim and afaros and the dorim, that if, if a, uh, a woman makes a nether, she makes an oath. And a woman, another woman who hears the oath says, and I too, I also, I, I'm extending her oath, I'll also take upon myself the oath. It's a continuation of the original oath. Then the husband comes and nullifies the original oath. The second oath remains standing. Even though now, now the, the original oath that it was based on, she says, I'm also going to follow her oath. But she no longer has an oath. Yes, the oath was smashed going forward. But when she made the oath, the oath was present. So her oath continues. It's a continuation of that original oath. But in the case of Atoros Nedarim, if the first one goes to the Wachacham and the Chacham uh, permits it, then it's as if it never happened. Now the second oath also is canceled. But this is how the Kasimishan explains the language of the Rambam. The Rambam says in the, the Laws of Nedarim, the 13th chapter, in the second halacha, so he says that hafaras, to nullify an oath, the husband or the father, you have to say, I nullify it. You can't say, the oath n- never happened. That's not, that's not his, within their power. 
Because it's not like the wise one. The wise one permits the oath. But the, the father or the husband, they uproot the oath. They uproot it from the beginning. And they nullify it. It's a very troubling language because didn't we just say that that's on the contrary? The wise one is the one who uproots it from the beginning. The father and the husband, they just nullify it, smash it, demolish it. They don't uproot it. Here that I'm saying the exact opposite. <laughs> that the wise one is the one who just permits it. But the, it's the husband and the wife who uproot it, may cut it. So the Kesem Mission explains now. The Rambam is saying, when you uproot it, like you have a tree, and you're uprooting it from its roots. So I'm uprooting it. But there's something to uproot. I'm uprooting the tree for, from its roots. Versus, Atadus Nedadim, when the wise one uh, um, permits the nether, there never was a tree. It never happened. It's a huge difference. Now when the Rambam says he uproots it, there's also a pl- practical implication because he argues with the Rosh. The Rosh says, for example, if a woman makes a nether, an oath, and she violates the oath, and then the husband or the father nullify the oath, does she get lashes? Did she violate the oath? So the Rosh says, yes, because when she violated it, she was under oath. <laughs> Later on, it was nullified. The Rambam says, no, that since when the father and the, and the husband nullified, they uprooted, they uprooted the tree. So therefore, you can't punish her for violating the oath if the oath was uprooted. How long does but, the father have? Okay, these are all the specific laws. The father, no, the, the, the husband only, uh, that day, the husband, uh, that day. Yeah, yeah, but that, we're not getting into the laws, the specifics of the laws, just this idea. But the Rambam... But the Rambam says, when you uproot it, you're uprooting a tree with its roots, you're uprooting a tree. The tree was there and it was uprooted. When the Chacham is Matinadr, there never was any, there never was any oath here in the first place. Some say, some want to say, according to the Shit of the Baratundura, that that the Rambam means that when the father is Matinadr, when the Chacham is Matinadr, it means it's still prohibited. But the Torah says there is no punishment. But when the, when the father and the husband uprooted, then it's totally uprooted, and then there's no prohibition whatsoever. But most don't learn like that. The Ketzer Mishnah, no, no. Hetan the Dadim is 100%. There's no, there's no, there's no Isser involved. It's 100%. When the rabbi said it's okay, it's okay. You have nothing to worry about. That's how most learn. But he's saying the difference is that here you uprooted, but there's a tree that's being uprooted at the roots. And here, there's no tree. It never happened. And the difference is, spiritually speaking, everything in the Torah, there's the soul of the Torah. The difference between hafaras nedarim and hataras nedarim is that a nether, if a person has certain addictions, certain powerful pulls and urges and connections that you have to materialism, to a downward spiral, to a dead end, to behavior that's self-destructive behavior, and you can't change that's why you make an oath when you can't change, when, you, when something is killing you and you have to swear, I'm never going to do this because if you don't swear, you don't take an oath, you're just too weak. You can't overcome this negative tendency that's killing you. 
So there's two ways to overcome your negative attachments to, to materialism. One is hafaras hanedr, and one is hataras hanedr. What's the difference? Hafaras hanedr means the father and the husband. When you realize that you have a, a, a relationship with Hashem, that Hashem is your father, and you feel that you, you feel that Hashem is your father, you feel you have a relationship with Hashem, or you feel that Hashem is your husband, you have a relationship with Hashem, that gives you the strength to smash, to nullify, to demolish your Yetzirah. I'm not going to, I'm going to resist temptation. I'm gonna, not going to succumb to my baser instincts. I'm going to override it. It overrides my instincts because I have, what do you mean? Hashem is my husband. Hashem is my father. So I have the strength to override my natural urges and instincts. But it's a case of demolishing. There's a very strong urge. There's a very strong instinct, a strong Yetzirah. But... I love Hashem, I feel the love of Hashem, I feel my love for Hashem, and I feel that Hashem is my husband, Hashem is my father, therefore I'm able to overcome and smash and overcome my Yetzirah. But then there's a much deeper way. It's called Hattaras Nadar. Who is, who is Matanedah? The Chacham. Who is a Chacham? The Talmud says. Is that a Chacham? Ethics of our father says, but in the Talmud it says, who sees the future. Who sees the con- the simple meaning is who sees the consequences of your actions. But Hasidah says a deeper harayas and means you see that the world is constantly being created, the world is constantly coming into existence. We are in the maternity ward. Hashem is constantly giving birth to this world. This world is being recreated each and every moment. And that's the tzaddik, the chacham who sees godliness who sees that this world is pulsating with the divine energy. We are nothing other than the divine energy that's constantly and continuously at this very moment is creating you and I and this bima and this book, everything. So when a chacham sees godliness, then he doesn't even have a yetzahara. The yetzahara is gone. He doesn't have to smash it, nullify it, destroy it. Not, be, not that he's not a human being. He's a human being, a flesh and blood like anyone else. He has urges and instincts like anyone else. But... There's no eye to lust. <laughs> There's no ego. If you see Hashem is constantly creating, the world is dynamic, and each and every moment the Hashem is recreating us like the very first time He created the world. And there's no, there's no ego, there's no eye to lust, there's no eye, of course, uh, to, uh, but there's no eye to lust or to crave or to money, power, fame. There's no Yetzirah. You've, you've completely you don't even have to go that's what it says if someone once has a nether, if you have issues connect to the Chacham connect to the Tzaddik connect to the Rebbe because he sees godliness to him godliness is visual is alive he sees it it's a, he experiences it and then when there's no ego you don't even have you don't even have it's as if it, the problem doesn't exist the problem vanishes so the idea of a nether is it's one of these miraculous phenomena that a nether is you reach into the past and that's how is the Chacham Matir the Chacham is only Matir if you regret it in other words if you say tell the Chacham had I realized what I realize now I would never have made a nether in the first place you have to qualify Let's say you made a nether, I'm never going to benefit from this person. I hate this person. And Afzalachas, this person was elected as the president of the community. You have no choice. You have to deal with him. He's the imposter. He's the president. That's not regret. You don't regret that you made a nether. You don't regret it for one second. 
I wish that he would never have won. And I wish, it's circumstantially, it's not it's out of my hands, he wants to have no choice. That's not a Tadis and the Dodim. You can't, the Chachem can't be Matan. Not the Nether means that had I known what I know now, I would never have made the Nether in the first place. I truly regret making the Nether. So when you regret making the nether, it's as if it never happened. You're reaching into your past and it's like erasing it from history. It's like erasing it as if it never happened. You're not, you're uprooting it. It never happened. That's why it's pereach ba'avir. It's like, hey, it's like floating in the air. It's not part of the frame, framework of this universe, past, present, future. How could you sit now and change something that happened in the past? And that's why tshuva also, tshuva... What's a key essential ingredient of truva? Regret. You truly have to regret. Real truva is. And this is what Deruvain tells the brothers. Next week's parsha. When when uh, Yosef accuses them. And they start regretting the fact that they sold Yosef. So Reuven says, Reuven says, I told you not to sell Yosef. So what's Reuven telling him? He's rubbing it in. I was right, you were wrong. It sounds childish. They're, they're regretting. So, so what do you want from their life? Okay, you were right and they were wrong. The Rebbe says, no. He was telling them. Reuven wrote the masters. He got the masters on Truva. He was the first one who really did Truva properly. So he's telling them, this Truva is not a real Truva. This is not a real regret. You don't regret selling Yosef. You only regret that now, now you're, 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 you're stuck and now you're in a very uncomfortable position. So you, you regret the consequences, but you don't really regret. You wish that you would have sold Yosef and you wouldn't have had any problems. That's not real regret. Real regret is, real truva is, they're in the same position as the Rambam says. It's very easy to do truva when you're older already and your teeth fell out and you can barely have energy to move. Now you regret being a playboy and having fun. That's, that's not, okay, very nice, but that's not real regret. Real regret is you're in the same position, you're in the same exact location, you can do exactly, you can get away with it, and you regret the fact that you sin and you make a choice, I'm not going to sin. That's true. True regret is not for any external circumstance. You have to, you're rewriting your history. You're choosing a parallel universe. You're going into a, as if you lived a different path, as if your whole life went into a different trajectory, as if you, you, you did something else entirely. So it has to be genuine. It has to be for real. You have to regret that the, the, the choice that you made, you regret and you would have made a totally different choice now, not for anything external. And that's why the Rambam says that real truva is when Hashem testifies that you'll never sin again. What what an astounding statement! Firstly, where's the source for that? But where? How could you say that? It's only truva is only if Hashem will testify, you will never sin again. But truva, real truva, is that you're choosing a different path, as if your whole life you're rewriting your whole life, a parallel universe. You're going back into your past, as if you imagine you would have chosen a whole different path in your life. How your life would have looked like, and that path you would have chosen. Sin, there's no room for sin there. Hashem, Hashem testifies that you're not going to sin. So tshuva is miraculous. And now we can explain, now we can understand the very puzzling mission at the end of, uh, of Tractate Brachas, last chapter, Haraya. So the Mishnah says, 
So if someone cries on something that happened in the past, you're davening to Hashem about something that happened in the past. And there's a tefillah It's a wasted davening. It's, it's, it's a meaningless davening. Kate said, he gives an example. He gives two examples. How you the move better? Your wife was pregnant. And you say, that my wife should give birth to a boy instead of a girl. It's already baked. It's baked already into the oven. It's there. You can't change a girl to a boy. It is what it is. So you're going to change. How you Baba Derech if he traveled? He's on the way, on the road. And he hears Kel he's, he's arriving into the city and he hears there's a commotion in the city. There's a fire burning. And he says, If there's a fire in my house, it shouldn't be my family. You're wasting your time. It's a, it's a, it's a prayer in vain. Because the fire happened already. You can't change it if it's in your house. In your house. If he would have prayed... Hashem, if it's in my house, Hashem should save my family from the fire. It's one thing. He doesn't pray that. He says, it should be your will that this fire shouldn't be in my house. It should happen somewhere else. It already happened. Firstly, why does he have to give two examples? You know, you, you can give examples. You can give a thousand examples. So the Mepharshim say, because really the first example is not simple. We do find, according to other Chazal, and Ashi brings in the Torah, Dina. Very good. Rashi brings in the Torah by, by Dina. Last week's parsha that that uh, Leah davened to Hashem. She had already a seventh child. She was pregnant with Dina. She said she davened Hashem, and he was a boy. Actually, it was a boy, and she davened Hashem. It's not fear. I'm gonna have se- there are only twelve tribes. I'm gonna have seven. Bila has two. Zilpa has two. What's left for Rachel? One. She's gonna be less than Bila and Zilpa. So she davened to Hashem, and Hashem answered her prayers, and the boy turned into a girl. That was Dina. That was pre-2021. <laughs> so we see, we see that, that Hashem does answer such a prayer. And this example is not, a, not simple. In this case, your prayer does help. That Hashem will turn the boy into a girl. That's why the Mishnah gives a different example. But this example is not unanimous. Not everyone agrees with this example. But the question is, it's a very strange thing. The Mishnah has to tell us, don't change what happened in the past. I mean, obviously. I mean, obviously, if the fire is burning, my, my house is burning, it's already on fire, what are you davening? If it's a boy, it's a boy, it's a girl, it's a girl, what are you davening? But, but the answer is not simple. Just like Shuvah, you can change your past. Just like Hatadas Nedonim in Allah, the power of the Chacham, you can change your past as if it never happened, as if the oath never happened, as if you never sinned. As Alter Rebbe says, Truva is, is, is a, an astonishing phenomenon. Could you imagine chopping off a head? How do you do Truva? How do you put the head back on? How do you do Truva? There's no head transplant yet. I know there's a Russian doctor who's claiming that he's about to do a head transplant. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. But, but you have a heart transplant, you have a kidney transplant, a head transplant. You chopped off your head, you sinned. A Jew sins, you chop off your head. You can disconnect it from Hashem, your source of life. <laughs> you disconnect it. So how, how, do you, how, do you, how do you put your head back on? 
The whole thing of truva is miraculous. You're reaching back into your past. You're changing your whole life, your whole life's trajectory, as if, as if you choose a parallel universe, as if your whole life was entirely different. And it works, and it's effective, as if your head was never chopped off. You're going back in time, and you're putting your head back on. It was never chopped off. And that's a regular truva. We're not talking about the higher levels. The higher level of truva is truva from love, where not only do you mend the sin as if the sin doesn't ha- never happen, that actually the sin becomes a mitzvah. That's a whole different level. That's where even the negativity is transformed into something positive because it's the sin, as the Altareb explains in Tanya, the seventh chapter, it's the sin, the negativity that leads you to an intense love for Hashem. So the sin itself, usually when a person sins, it's a drag. Then it, it creates a negative energy that drags you down, schleps you down. But when, when you transform the truva of love where the sin leads you to such an intense thirst, and yearning for Hashem, then this negativity turns into a mitzvah that becomes a positive energy that lifts you up. That's a whole different level. We're talking about even the simple level of truth, that the sin is erased as if it never happened. I'm putting the head back, I'm going back in time and putting the head back on. I mean, the whole thing is astonishing. But Hashem could do anything. Hashem is past, present, and future together. So why should prayer be any different? You think Hashem, who split the sea, you think Hashem can't go into the past and change the past? To us, it sounds astonishing, because the world, is a frame of this world, is past, present, and future. Everything is in sequence. But by Hashem, everything is simultaneous, past, present, future, together. So why can't Hashem? So that's what the mission is to tell us. Of course Hashem can do anything. But Hashem made the world in such a way, He's telling us, He's not going to do this. Because if he does this, that's the end of this world. <laughs> if this world becomes a magical place where I can go into the past, like a computer game, I go into the past, rewrite it, re-edit it, change it, then, then there's no freedom of choice anymore, then this world is over. I mean, if you saw with your own eyes there's a fire in the house and someone sits and prays and all of a sudden the fire goes back, like you go back in time and suddenly there is no fire, the house is back up. I mean... If it becomes revealed that this whole world is like a, like a computer game, this whole world really is, there's no reality to this world. The whole world is really Hashem, there's nothing else. And therefore Hashem could go into the past. Hashem could do that, Hashem could do anything. But then there's no world anymore. But the only argument is in the case of the woman who's pregnant. Because here it's still concealed. Yes, it's a boy. But since it's not visible, that's a question. Will Hashem do that and change and answer such a prayer? That's an argument. And by dinner, he did answer such a prayer. Even though it's the same concept. You're reaching into the past, changing the past, rewriting history. But in this case, Chazal have an argument. The Mishnah Berkha says Hashem will not do that. And the other Chazal, and Brut Bairashi, Hashem does, does do that. But anything else, in the case of the house, no one agrees, no one argues. That Hashem will never do that. Because if he does, it's the end of the world. And maybe that's Takib Shat. There's three things that have to happen. There's three different levels. Mashiach. After Mashiach comes the resurrection of the dead, which is totally miraculous. But then there comes even a higher level. Chad Cheruv. When the world will be destroyed. The millennium. The Shabbos. We're now in the year 5,782. There's only 220 years left. Mashiach has to come and then they'll be followed by the resurrection. According to the Zohar, it'll be an era. 40 years later after Mashiach will be the general resurrection. And then is the year 6,000. The year 6,000 begins Chad Cheruv. What does it mean the world is destroyed? Hashem is going to destroy the world. Is gonna... 
So you can say Chad Charuv is a world. And the Gemara asks, well, what, what, is Hashem, what are the Tzaddikim going to do then? They're going to float in the air. So the same language that it says, Het in the Dorim, Perer Ba'avir, the Chazal use the same language. They're going to float in the air. They're going to fly in the air. So, and in, in, in the Gemara, I think the Gemara, and in Tamar, huh? yeah, the Gemara. They're going to fly in the air. So maybe you can say it means, Chad Charuv means, that in the year 6,000, you will see this world, a world where you can reach into your past, and you can undo and redo and edit and change. The house is burning, now suddenly you go back and you bring the house back the way it was. Such a world, I mean, this world is over. I mean, the world as we know it is over. Such a world where past and present and future is all one, and you can physically change. And that's why it's like floating in the air. It's, it's, it's not part of the frame of reference of this entire world where everything is past, present, and future, and everything is sequential. This will be a world which is completely beyond. But today, Hashem says, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to answer such a prayer. Don't waste, don't waste, don't say my name in vain. You're wasting your time. I'm promising you, I'm not going to do that because then it's the end of this world as we know it. But the closest that we do find to this concept is we find by Eliezer, when Eliezer went to find a Shidduch for Yitzchak, find Rivka, so Rabshim Baychoy says, Rabshim Baychoy says, there are three who Hashem answered their prayer, he answered their prayer like immediately. He says, Moshe Rabbeinu, Shleim HaMelech, and Eliezer. When Moshe prayed by Kairach, when he rebelled against him, so Moshe prayed, it says, as soon as he finished praying, the earth opened up and swallowed, swallowed them all up. Shleim HaMelech, when he built the base of Migdash, as soon as he prayed, he just finished praying, and immediately the Shechina came, Hashem's presence became manifest in the first time. And Eliezer, Eliezer, he says even more so, before he even finished praying, he already got his answer. Before he finished praying, Rivka shows up. Now, think about it. Rabbi Shimon says that Hashem answered Eliezer's prayer. He says three Hashem answered the prayer. He doesn't say that Eliezer didn't have to pray because it was already all taken care of. That's not what he says. He says he answered their prayer. Now, most of us, we pray and Hashem answers no. <laughs> Those who Hashem answers yes, it could take time. Moshe. Uh, and Moshe was about, was, was about his prophecy to establish the, the veracity and the genuineness of his prophecy and the whole Torah. And Shleim HaMelech, who built the Beis HaMikdash, Hashem answered immediately. Eliezer was even stronger. And it's miraculous. Think about it. He's davening and Hashem is answering his prayer. So what does that mean? In order for Rivka to show up before we even finish praying, things have to happen in the past. So I'm davening now. Hashem is answering my prayer. My prayer reaches into the past, changes the past, and Rivka is here. My prayer, it was a response to his prayer. That's what Hashem says. So Hashem responded to Eliezer's prayer now. And the response was, the, how could the cause happen after the effect? <laughs> the cause is now, and the effect is in the past. I'm davening now, and suddenly it changes the past, and Rivka suddenly had to leave the house. She didn't just show up. She had to, a whole chain of events had to happen for her to show up at this moment. And it's in response to my prayer now. So we see this concept, the closest that we get, 
where you're reaching into your past, where davening, where you're davening, and it does affect your past. And the reason why Eliezer would, Hashem would respond to Eliezer even more so than to Shleim HaMelech and to Meishu Rabbeinu. Because it was about the marriage. Of the, first, the first Jewish marriage. It was about the marriage of the Jewish people and Hashem. I mean, it was about the marriage, the first Jewish marriage, Rivka and Yitzchak. So it's just like Hashem's response to our prayers depends on what kind of relationship we have with Hashem. If a Jew feels like a worker, I'm a worker, and Hashem is my employer, and I'm a faithful and loyal employee, okay, you put in a request, the employer has to answer you, he doesn't have to answer you, he can take his time, there's no rush. It all depends what kind of relationship we have with Hashem. If your relationship with Hashem is a cold relationship, a very technical relationship, I'm a religious Jew, I take my responsibilities, my duties seriously, I have my Fine, so you ask, Hashem could answer, couldn't answer, there's no rush. If your relationship to Hashem is like a parent-child relationship, you feel that love, that closeness, of course, a parent responds very quickly. You see the love of your child, you respond very quickly. So then you respond very quickly. But the ultimate relationship, of course, is a husband and wife relationship. And a husband and wife relationship, before she even finishes <laughs> saying anything, you don't even have to say anything. You already anticipate what she wants, what she needs, because it's so close. So in marriage, that's when we see the ultimate response to Hashem. When a Jew feels married to Hashem, and your whole Yiddishkeit, and your mitzvahs, and your teirah, and your tzedakah, and your chesed, it's an expression of your marriage and relationship to Hashem, then Hashem responds in the ultimate, that before you even finish praying, you're already, Hashem already responds, and your prayer triggers something in the past. I'm praying now, and it creates the cause, affects the, the effect is in the past, the cause is in the present, it reaches a level that's beyond Hashem Himself, it's time, past, present, and future all together. And that's the closest that we get today to reaching into our past and changing our past in, in prayer. So this is the concept of Truva, this is the power of Truva, the miraculous concept of Truva that I would always say that you can reach into your past, change your past. And, um, and of course, we also ask Hashem, we all have to do Truva. <laughs> should remove the exile and um, you know for keeping the Jewish people so long in this Golith and um, past and Hashem should erase not only erase the exile but actually just like the sins turn into mitzvahs that the Golith itself will turn the negativity itself will turn into something positive Goyla will turn into Gula and may it happen now Amen